Broadcasting from the Hair Saloon corporate offices, it's the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. Today on the show, we're going to talk with Stephen Baskerville about the war on fatherhood, marriage, and the family. But before we do that, I have a quick favor to ask. We podcasters love nothing more than to get reviews. It totally makes our day. So I would appreciate it if you would pause this podcast for a hot second and write a review on whatever platform you're currently using. And if you've already done so, please consider sharing the podcast with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. Shoot them a text or an email with a link to a specific episode you enjoyed. Word of mouth is the primary way podcasts grow. I also want to remind you that if you're looking for marriage or relationship coaching, go to SuzanneBenker.com and click on the coaching button at the top. Finally, if you love The Suzanne Banker Show and you would like to see it remain commercial-free, don't forget to become a Patreon subscriber. Just go to thesuzannebenkershow.com and click on Become a Patron. And speaking of patrons, a quick shout-out to Pamela for becoming a new supporter. And thank you, everyone, for your continued support. And now on with the show. Millions of children of divorce are in desperate need of a relationship with both parents. Sadly, far too many are reduced to having a relationship with only one parent, the mother. Citing a principle called the best interest of the child, family courts award sole or primary custody of most children of divorced parents to mothers, thereby reducing fathers to occasional visitation and zero authority. The silence on this issue is deafening, and this silence comes just as much from the right as it does from the left. It even comes from churches. Making matters worse is that divorce is no longer fault-based. Unilateral divorce is now the law of the land, and three-fourths of divorces are initiated by wives. Women don't have to allege any fault by the husband, and he has no right to oppose the divorce. To address the egregious phenomenon of, a, of our... Uh, to address the egregious phenomenon of our divorce industry, and it is an industry, I could think of no one better than Stephen Baskerville former professor of government at Patrick Henry College. Stephen is widely recognized as a leading authority on fatherhood, family policy, and sexual politics. He holds a Ph.D. from the London School of Economics and writes on political ideologies with an emphasis on religion, family policy, and sexuality. His books include The New Politics of Sex and Taken into Custody, The War Against Fathers, Marriage, and the Family. Stephen serves on advisory boards to the Ruth Institute, the Men's Health Network, and other organizations. His website is Stephen, that's with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Baskerville.com. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. I don't think that you and I have ever, I, I've known of you, you've known of me, but I don't think we've ever actually spoken. So it's really nice to hear your voice. Indeed. Um, I'm going to start with focusing on the book that is... Um, a little bit older than your more current one, and we will get to the current one, but I think it's the one that my listeners will mostly want to hear about, and that is, of course, Taken Without Custody. And in that book, you, of course, blow apart the divorce industry as well as, well, just everything related to that. And I'm going to read various quotes um, that I've pulled from that book and have you discuss them here and explain. Okay. All right, the first one is, you called the divorce industry, quote, a massive and largely hidden governmental and quasi-governmental machine consisting of judges, lawyers, psychologists, and psychiatrists 
social workers, child protective services, child support enforcement agents, mediators, counselors, and feminist groups, plus an extensive host of economic interests such as divorce planners, forensic accounts, real estate appraisers, and many others, end quote. Well, that is an industry, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. It's a governmental machine, and it's an industry. Uh, everyone gets their, their noses in the trough when it comes to divorce. Yes. So it was really started in many ways by, by ideologically by the, the the radical feminists along with but but the but the um, the pecuniary interests you know the, the legal interests and the and the commercial interests uh, quickly got, got involved also. Well, I know that this is. I mean, this is. It's just this huge um, travesty that is that gets such little coverage. I don't know how many years you've been addressing this. Tell us your uh, sort of the trajectory of how you started with this and what what you've had happen as a result of trying to address it all of these years? Well, I've been at it now for, I would say, a little over 20 years uh, writing about these issues. I've written quite a few dozen, uh, a couple hundred probably articles about it, plus the two books. And um, well, my field is political science. That's the way I was trained. And um, I quickly realized, um, after seeing what was going on here, that it, the cliches that most people hear about, ugly divorce, nasty custody battle. You know, I had this image like most people have of, of two uh, unreasonable parents, um, you know, suddenly becoming angry at each other, fighting over other kids and, and so forth. And after a while, I realized this wasn't quite accurate. Um, that in fact, the government was not a, a neutral bystander in all of this. This was really being fomented uh, and encouraged by government officials and, and, and government agencies, uh, foremost the courts, but but many others as well. And there's a whole political dynamic behind this. Um, it wasn't just cultural. It wasn't just, you know, the ter- deterioration of the family, as we hear about. It wasn't just, you know, people being selfish and individualistic, uh, as the cliches are. Um, it was an, uh, There's a political dynamic here. Um, the courts intervene in families where often there's no legal wrongdoing. Often they will intervene against the, uh, if there is legal wrongdoing, they will intervene on the side of the wrongdoer uh, against the, um, the, the spouse who is, or the parent who is wronged uh, and take the side. So they, and they will seize the children of one parent and usually give it to the other, give them to the other parents. So at least one parent in the dispute usually has no choice in the matter. He or she is, usually he is pulled into it because they seize his children. Uh, without any legal grounds, because that's what no-fault divorce permits permits them to do, is to, to, to divorce without legal grounds and to take the children with you. And because the courts aid and abet and encourage uh, one parent or both parents to act irresponsibly, um, at least one figure, at least one parent or spouse has no choice but to fight. If someone takes your children away, you're going to fight. Um, so it's it's uh, it's a very lopsided situation. Do we assume that the reason this disproportionately affects fathers is because, of course, wives are the ones who are filing for divorce in the vast majority of cases? In other words, if it yes. were reversed for those men who do instigate it, does the same thing happen with that smaller group of women, wives? Occasionally it does, and it usually happens because the man, if the man instigates it, it's usually because he has some connection with the legal system and he knows how the game works and he knows how to play the system. But um, generally, yes, over the, over, overwhelmingly the divorces are, are by, by women, especially when children are involved by the mothers, um, because they are encouraged. They are told by the um, legal societies, by the feminist uh, organizations. Um, basically, if, if you grab the children and go, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. If you if you take the children and leave, um, you will get custody. Uh, you will get child support. 
Um, you may get him excluded from the children altogether, or at, at best, he can have them every other weekend as a kind of um, you know relief for you, babysitting. Uh, and you will not be punished for any of this. If you make false accusations of domestic violence, you will not be punished for that either. In fact, you will, that will help you get custody, uh, at least temporarily, and that usually turns into, into permanent custody. So it's, um, it's very much rigged. They are encouraging the women um, to grab the children and to grab power is really what it is, um, and to um, you know to, to make off in the knowledge that that this will um, they'll get what they want and they will create business for the divorce practitioners who um, who profit from all of this. And on a more personal level, which, which interests me, this isn't the legal end so much, but um, something else that that I read in the book, Taken Without Custody. Uh, is the is the fact that fathers, I think, in general, are more concerned than mothers about the effect of divorce on children, which has a lot to do with why they don't uh, instigate divorce, in my opinion. So you, it said in there, a survey commissioned by the AARP found that not only do 66% of women report that they asked for the divorce, men are over 50% more likely than women to avoid divorce because of its impact on children. Quote, 58% of men delayed their divorce because of concerns about their children, says the AARP, far fewer women had this worry. So what interests me about that most is that aside from the legal issues, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about, there's also you know, a, a different response to what to do about problems within a marriage. So I think we see between fathers and mothers, generally speaking, that men are are going to put up with a lot more, <laughs> I guess that's the best way of saying it, for the sake of the kids and not think that they're going to find something better out there or that they should divorce to be happy or whatever. That's much more likely to be fostered in women as a mindset and used as a reason for getting out of a marriage. Um, that's generally correct, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so they're think- already starting off uh, before the legal process with a, just sort of an uneven mindset, if that makes sense. That's right. I think there's, you know there's a lot in that. I think also on the other side of that, it's just much more difficult for men to use children as weapons. Um, you know, uh, it's more difficult for a man to to grab the children and to go off and and to to force the wife to um, you know to pay his lawyers to get them back, to pay child support and so forth. So it's 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 kind of the natural weapon for a woman who's angry mm-hmm. at her spouse or wants to simply wants to get power um, to use the children as a weapon. Um, the father is usually the one with the superior earning power. He's usually the one that they can milk for legal fees and for child support. Um, so it's more likely that that he's the one that is going to be he's going to be seen as as the bundle of cash that they've got to get um, that they want. So if you take once you take the children from the father, first of all, nobody earns anything uh, until the children are separated from from the father. Um, that's why the first thing the divorce courts do is to separate the children and the father. That's They say it's temporary, but of course it's never temporary. Um, it's the, from that point on, it's the burden of proof and the financial burden falls upon the father to get his children back again. There's no burden of proof on the courts to justify why they're separating the children from a legally unimpeachable father. Uh, the burden of proof falls on the father to show why he should be given his children back again. And and that's where the earnings kick in. Everyone everyone earns money once once the children are separated from the father. Well, okay, so that's where this whole myth of the deadbeat dad comes into play, and it's so critical. So I have a quote, another quote here from your book. If he works, referring to, you know, your average husband and father, you said, quote, if he works long hours, he is a careerist who neglects his children. If he cares for his children, he is failing to earn as much income for them as he might. 
If he disciplines his children, he is controlling or even abusive. If he doesn't, he is neglectful. If he does not bathe them, he is neglecting them. If he does, he may be molesting them. If he fails to express sufficient love for them, he is uncaring. If he does, he is indulgent. I thought that was an amazing paragraph um, that just proves that that they're in a no-win situation. And the idea of marking you as a deadbeat dad, for anything that goes wrong within the family courts, if you're not paying or if you can't pay or if something happened that kept you from paying, you're stamped with this label and, and you can't get out of that box. And I know people in that situation. That's correct. And, and the striking thing about the, the whole divorce court situation is that the, you know, none of this is based on any legal wrongdoing. Uh, the, it's not that the father has done anything legally wrong, either criminally or civilly. Um, so it becomes a free-for-all. I mean, anything that the judge wants to invoke or uh, you know, attorney wants to invoke as a fault in the father can, can, can be used as a, as a rationalization for, for taking or keeping his children from him and forcing him to pay uh, more child support. So it's, it's, a, it's legal nihilism. It's not based on the father or anyone else having done anything uh, legally wrong. It's based on simply whatever whim the judge wants to use to um, to rationalize uh, taking his children and using them as instruments of, of, of plunder. And I don't understand how this is this is another piece of this is how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? Meaning what about the fewer percentages of fathers, husbands and fathers who are, quote unquote, bad or whatever, who have done wrongdoing? N- up against all these who are accused but but are not guilty how how do you then it's sort of like over diagnosing ADHD once you've done that you, you can't find the ones that are legit in there right right exactly and it doesn't matter if they do because it, even if a father has done something wrong you know, it, that's not the basis on, on which he will be punished he will be punished for being a father because they want to get get to his money um, so it doesn't really matter um, mm. who's who's at fault that's what no fault is no fault is 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 a system of, of complete um, chaos um, because justice has to be based on fault no fault justice is a contradiction in terms i believe that that's been your primary argument in your articles and books is it not that no fault divorce is largely to blame for this mess that we're in and that what we need to do is to enforce the constitution can you explain this to my listeners sort of in layman's terms about how that would go down well, yes. Uh, I, mean, I mean, there's a number of ways. Uh, one of my chapters, chapter two in that book, I go down the Bill of Rights, and I just show how every article in the Bill of Rights is, is routinely violated in these courts. And um, uh, yeah, no-fault divorce is a, is a big part. Of it. I'm not sure it's, it's everything, because in many ways, these trends were developing even before no-fault divorce. But no-fault divorce codified uh, the abuses and made them, made them you know, legitimate, so to speak. Um, but basically, the, the divorce courts violate the most basic principles of the common law. I mean, one of which is uh, an old principle of the common law is that if you've done nothing legally wrong, you have a right to be left alone in your own home. Um, the divorce courts violate this. You can be hauled into court without having – you can be a legally unimpeachable citizen, innocent of any legal wrongdoing, criminal or civil, and yet you're hauled into court and you become the, the target of legal directives. The judge basically legislates a kind of ad hoc um, uh, code of uh, criminal code around you, and um, you're told what you can, where you can go, what you can do, when you can see your own children, how much you must pay, um, and if you violate any of these these – this ad hoc legislation that's being written around you, you are open to incarceration without trial. Well, this is obviously, you know, this is obviously completely inconsistent with the common law. It's inconsistent with the Constitution. Um, the the idea that you know completely innocent people can be can have their children taken away from them 
without any uh, show that they've done anything wrong is is um, is the beginning of uh, again of just legal not just not just chaos but legal um, uh, repression legal legal tyranny. Um, and then of course you uh, okay oh, sorry go ahead. No, it's, go ahead. But, but you could you could show. I mean, how, how basically all of the precepts, all of the the um, you know the idea of, of child support, of, of taking money, plundering uh, an innocent citizen uh, because his children supposedly need it. Well, his children only need it because you've taken them away from them. Um, if you give his children mm-hmm. back again, then there's no need to pay child support. The idea that you can take away the property of someone again who has not done anything wrong, he hasn't done anything to forego his right to take care of his children himself. Um, but the courts say that he's, you know, he has an obligation to, to support his children. Well, of course he does, but he doesn't have an obligation to pay the government money for taking his children away from him. In fact, his money is the only leverage he has against the government doing that. So it's it's an outrageous violation of the most basic freedoms uh, that our, our system provides. It's It's so big, Stephen. I mean, it's just, it's so big. And yet, as you point out in the book, political correctness, of course, keeps us from being able to even address it, let alone solve it. How many Stephen Baskervilles do you think there are <laughs> in the country who are, uh, you know, what percentage is willingly fighting or attempting to, you know, be heard on this subject, do you think? I think I think quite an enormous number are. If you look at some of the people lately who've been making videos and the and the audience that they get, I think a lot of people over the years have been trying to fight this, but it is very difficult. I mean, look at my situation. I have a fairly better situation than most. I had a platform for years as a um, as a professor of government in in a university, and then later on in a in a college. Um, I managed to get a few peer-reviewed articles written about the subject, which have never been refuted. I managed to get two books published on the subject, uh, none of, neither of which have ever been in any way refuted by anyone. And yet they're completely ignored, uh, despite publishing books that no one's been able to refute, uh, that show shocking violations of, of basic constitutional rights. Um, no change takes place, no investigations by the media, no investigations by the state. Um, the left-wing media ignores it, the right-wing media ignores it. Uh, and it's it's just uh, you know it's amazing. Uh, I mean, I've called this the most repressive government machinery ever created in the English-speaking world, certainly in the United States. And nobody's ever said that. Showed me that that's that's an incorrect statement. And yet, why is there not an investigation of this? Well, and here's the interesting part. How, and you just, you've discussed this as well. But but when exact? How and when did right? leaning people, conservatives, cave on this issue, in your opinion? Or or did they never get on board to begin with? Like, what happened there? They never got on board to begin with, is the short answer. Uh, it was brought in basically when nobody was looking in the, in the 60s, 1970 and, and afterwards. Um, uh, the feminists had been writing uh, no-fault divorce legislation for decades. They finally got it through uh, in 1970 and afterwards when everybody's attention was on Vietnam and on civil rights. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan later admitted that he was deceived, basically, when he signed the first law into effect in California and regretted it. Um, there's never been, there was never a debate at the time when it was brought in. There was no public discussion about it. It was taken from auto insurance. That's where no, the no-fault divorce, the no-fault concept originated. Uh, there's never been any uh, discussion about it in the decades since it was enacted. It took, I would say that it took a couple of decades for the for the abuses, for the potential abuses to begin to be realized, for the real horror to begin emerging with, you know, the huge proliferation of, of single parent homes and so forth and the, the crime and, and drug abuse statistics and all that are completely associated with that. Um, but 
it, it, gradually over the years, the system just gets worse and worse, and the, the injustices become worse and worse, and the social problems become worse and worse. And yet nobody wants to look back and say, maybe we made a mistake mm-hmm. um, you know, 50 years ago mm-hmm. when, when we brought this stuff in. And yet nobody – maybe the people – because there were people at the time who warned against this. As, as I mentioned in the book, there were people that say this is a prescription for disaster. Um, well, even Ronald Reagan, who, who put through the no-fault divorce, regretted that, right? Right. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. he did. And there were people, even within the legal profession, judges and lawyers, who said this is, you know, this is this is contrary to the most basic principles and ethics of our profession, and and this is going to lead to nothing but disaster. And uh, they were they were right, and they were ignored. So, there's kind of two different ways. So, so the, the short answer is okay. So, what now? And one way, of course, of addressing it is through the legalities and policies, and that's one thing. But what about? So I know people who are in, you know, good husbands and fathers who are who have been victims of this. What do you tell them? Like how what is their recourse, you know, relative to doing nothing and just like rolling over and letting it happen? Right. I've racked my brains for for years now to to think of something. And I I really have nothing to say. There's there's really nothing you can do. Um, The best thing you can do is what I've attempted to do. You try to publicize it. You try to – you can take a chance. If you're a lawyer, a businessman, if you have some kind of public profile, you should try to publicize it, write articles, bring it to the attention of the local media. Uh, um, hopefully that can give you some protection in court. If judges don't like criticism. They don't like being criticized in the media. Um, if you criticize the judge as loudly and as publicly as you can, it could backfire on you, to be honest. It could – the judge could punish you to shut you up. Or it could help you. The judge could be, you know, intimidated into into being uh, into being just. One of the things that strikes me over the years, and to answer your your previous question, that I have had quite famous men, high profile men in the conservative political circles, come to me and tell me that this has happened to them, and ask me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, you know, you'd be doing a huge service if you would speak out. You've got a public platform. You know, you've got a head of an organization or a, you know, whatever, uh, you'd be doing a great service if you would speak out about this. They never do. They never do. They're usually men with uh, money. They choose to hire an expensive lawyer and hope that they you know, hope that they prevail. Maybe they do. If you spend enough money on a lawyer, if you can spend six figures on a lawyer, maybe the system becomes, you know, gets enough, feels like it's milked you for enough. Um, but even high-profile conservative men this is what they've done. They've chosen to, to play the game, um, keep their heads down, avoid negative publicity, pay the, the ransom effectively, mm. and hope that they, you know, that they get uh, a better deal with yeah, their children. Yeah, because I have a friend, uh, Terry Brennan, that's a male, and um, he, he actually has written. He's done exactly what you just said, and he's completely, I think at this point, just washed his hands even after having done that a handful of times because no other – he can't get anybody on the right to join him. And if there's any going to, if there's going to be a group, you would think it would be those on the right. And he cannot. He, he now just says conservatives, conservatives are hopeless on this. So he's really standing alone, and you can't stand alone and make any headway, you know. So precisely, it's just a disaster. Yeah. It really is. And it's so ironic when conservatives talk about the family. They talk, we have <laughs> pro-family groups, uh, you know, and there's nothing that, and, and they spend their time. You know, fighting things like abortion and and mm-hmm. um, and euthanasia and things like that, which you know are legitimate causes, of course. But you know, there are certainly not as direct threats to the family as divorces. There's no threat to the family that is as direct as divorces. In fact, I no. cite in my second book a 
a political science a jerk, a, a, an academic article from a peer-reviewed sci- uh, political science journal, in which the writer just can't can't figure this out. He investigates all of these conservative <laughs> uh, groups, and he he throws up his hands and says, "Why aren't they interested in divorce?" I mean, this, this is this is uh, <laughs> he can't, uh, he, I can't figure it out either. I think it's because so many of them are affected by it as well. So they don't, I mean, it's not like when you talk about abortion, it may not, it, it might not have anything to do with you personally. You haven't, you're not experiencing it personally. And so it's easier to talk about it. But then when you're dealing with it, I don't know. I don't know. That's just conjecture. But I'm glad you brought up your, your second book because we're going to shift gears over to that. So that's called, that book is The New Politics of Sex. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the the gist of that, the thesis of that book is that the effects of the sexual revolution, and this is where my work, where I'm much more involved with this issue specifically, the effects of the sexual revolution have led the West to the brink of social and economic ruin. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Yes, you could you could you could say that. Okay, and you wrote in that book, quote, feminists and more recently homosexual political activists have now positioned themselves at the vanguard of left-wing politics, shifting the political discourse from the economic and racial to the social and increasingly the sexual. Uh adding that these groups are pursuing a quote, social and sexual confrontation with the private family, marriage, masculinity and religion. Right. The book has several themes, and that's one of them, uh, is that we are faced here with a new ideology. It's a new ideology uh, in the mold of Marxism, fascism, um, uh, um, socialism, um, you know, the older ideologies mm-hmm. that have dominated modern history. But this is a new one. This is an ideology um, not based on economic or social relations, not based on nationalism, not based on uh, ethnicity or race, uh, but a new ideology based on sexuality. And the feminists started this. Um, the homosexuals, homosexualists, I say, the homosexual political activists pushed this up further. The transgenderists have, have moved into this more recently. But that's what this is. And while conservatives are still kicking the dead horse of Marxism um, and, uh, and socialism, uh, the left has moved on yeah. to, uh, to, to feminism and homosexualism. And that's where the game is today. And we haven't uh, – the, the right, the conservatives have a Maginot line. They're, they, 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 they had a Maginot line against socialism and communism, and the left mm-hmm. just walked around it. Um, and the right doesn't have any idea how to, how to deal with this today. No, in fact, you you wrote about regarding uh, sexual harassment, domestic violence, those types of you know sexual assault, those words. You wrote that there's never been an epidemic of those things. It's not, and then quote, it's not that deeds associated with these terms don't happen. The terms themselves are ideological constructions designed to create hysteria and mean nothing. End quote. Which I, I completely, I mean, that's really the fight today. It's a fight over language. So let's talk about the language that's used so effectively about by radicals, because it's actually brilliant, really, in the way that it's created, because it makes it so hard for people to oppose, because they create these terms that sound so benign on the surface, and who wouldn't be against it, like equality, you know, sexual equality or gender equality, same thing. Right. Right. Well, this is another theme of the book, and this is really in some ways the, the, the book's claim to, to, to be a, a new ar- argument, a new explanation for what's going on. I basically argue that the sexual revolution took place in two stages, um, not necessarily chronologically, but two, two, two opposite stages, seemingly opposite, but actually they work together in, in concert. One was the sexual freedom. You know, the, the hippies, the Woodstock generation, the, you know, free love, free sex. Um, you know, the, wh- what harm is it doing to anybody? Uh, you know, w- w- we should have sexual freedom. 
both feminists and, and men and homosexuals and everybody. Um, but then, of course, this and, and to do this, they undermined all of our traditional um, regulations over sexuality, one of the foremost of which was religion, but traditional family morality, um, uh, terms like you know, fornication and adultery. And uh, um, they went out, you know, they became laughable. They were ridiculed. Um, people like, uh, like like Mary Washington in England and others, um, uh, uh, sorry, Mary Whitehouse in England uh, and others, um, you know, were ridiculed. Uh, and ho ho ho! All these all these silly prudes. Um, you know, let's move on to the to you know mm-hmm. to the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. The second, but we're obviously this created chaos. This created sexual, you know, uh, yep. chaos that no society can live with. So what did they do? They they moved in with a new code of sexual um, propriety. Rather than having thrown out religion, having thrown out traditional morality, having thrown out the traditional family, they moved in with the new the new um, which instead of sins they replaced with crimes. Um, sexual harassment, uh, domestic violence, sexual abuse, sexual assault, uh, new definitions of rape, um, uh, you know, child abuse, um, uh, domestic violence, these sorts of things, bullying. All of these things, none of these things have any real solid definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they, are they, are they, are they um, sins? Are they crimes? Are they legally actionable? If so, are they actionable in a criminal court or in a civil court? You know, where, where, where does sexual harassment leave off and sexual assault begins, or and where does where does rape begin? None of this is clear because all of these are very vague terms, yeah. which are designed to be vague so that they can be stretched and, and to fit whoever it is you want to pin them on. Exactly. Uh, a basic. A basic principle of the law is that the law should be precise. It should be exact. So a person can know if he or she is breaking the law, and a person who sits in judgment on them, like in a jury, can know if they've if they've committed a crime. But when you create something like sexual harassment, which has no no definition, it still has no definition. When Daphne Pattaya wrote her book twenty five years ago, it had no definition, and it still has no definition, <laughs> because the point is to is to snare as many people as you can. So the the sexual left did two things: they created the sexual chaos with their freedom, and then they brought in sexual authoritarianism with their new. Um, you know, their new codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what every revolution does. I mean, this is what the French Revolution did. They brought it first in the, the rights of man and then the reign of terror. Uh, every revolution promises freedom. But then when the freedom gets out of control, mm-hmm. you bring in the, rep- the, 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 the repression. So so I, I want to focus on that's a that's a great um, segue into um, this statement that you made about feminists, which, again, going right into my territory, because I deal with this stuff every week. Uh, feminists have not created a gender-neutral utopia with men and women interchangeably caring for children and earning wages. Instead, they have merely placed women, as well as men, on the employment treadmill. By flooding the workforce with new workers, they have driven down male wages, intensifying pressures on families to send the woman into the workforce and for the man to work longer hours, giving him less involvement with his family, end quote. And I would add, it goes further than that, that the marriage itself is very tenuous because when you have that complete role reversal where the man isn't working, and this, these are the people that I get in my coaching sessions where the woman is basically the breadwinner and doesn't want to be because she didn't anticipate that 10, 15 years down the road, she's going to want to pull back from the workforce and take care of her children. But now she can't because the men are not earning. Right. 
yeah, this is this is again one of the many unintended consequences of the whole thing. You know, it, it was seen to be empowering for women to go into the workforce, and for some of them it was. And there is a, a sense in which you know going into the workforce does empower the woman financially and, and mm-hmm. enables her, gives her leverage to, to sure. start a divorce proceeding. Actually, <laughs> um, but 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 for many women, uh, yeah, they they don't want to do this. And then the, you know, there's a whole gray area of women who don't you know want to go in part time, but but you know, but the financial pressure uh, of declining male wages over the years, forces the women into the workforce. Actually, another uh, dimension of this, too, is that the children end up being institutionalized longer in, mm-hmm. in not only school, school but daycare, daycare. and, and mm-hmm. preschool because the mother is, you know, gone. so everybody lives more of an institutional life. The father is working if, if he isn't in jail. Um, you know, the mother is working. Uh, the children are, are, are institutionalized, if you like, in, in, in various ways. So everybody becomes uh, you know becomes worker beans everybody is yeah. is is you know is institutionalized in some kind of niche and rather than a family a dynamic family everybody's you know involved in some kind of an an institution yeah, and an independent endeavor right so you have the kids in daycare right. you have the mom at work and the dad at work there's just they're like they're sharing beds and showers right <laughs> and and that's it right. that's an interesting way of of putting it for sure um right I mean, the domino effect, it's just, it's, it's striking. It's just striking. And of course, you also talk about single parenthood in your book. So we can't really not address that. Although I have several times on this program, because of course, divorce invariably leads to that. And that invariably means that most, as we're pointing out here, most children who are in single parent homes are with their mothers and not their fathers, which then has the fallout of um, that broken relationship with dad. Um, I don't know. Did you get too much into that in, um, not in this particular book, we've kind of switched gears. We're now on the new politics of sex. Um, but going back real quick to the other book, I know you talked about single parenthood. Did you have anything there in particular that you wanted to add? Well, yeah, I do talk about it briefly, but others have talked about it, so I don't go into it. I mean, it's it's well known. The, yeah. the social science is irrefutable of the connection between single-parent homes and virtually every social pathology, whether it's crime, substance abuse, truancy, you know, the next generation of unwed mothers, um, and so forth. So the, the social costs of, of family breakdown and um, and single-parent homes is actually well-known, and you will find conservatives going on about that. I mean, they do write yeah. about it. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't you know, want to want to labor the, the point. Um, what's striking about the, the conservative is that, is that they will describe this quite eloquently, and then they will go on, but, but uh, they won't do anything about it. They won't. The logical next step is, well, why don't we do something about the divorce system and the welfare <laughs> system, which is causing this situation? But they won't. They they just want to. It seems like the conservatives want to lament and bemoan. They just want to, to to wring their hands and say, "Woe is me! This is a terrible situation." Uh, and yet, there's a very simple remedy for it all. We just, you know, tighten the, the tighten up the, the divorce laws. Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying that you shouldn't have you can't have a divorce. Mm-hmm. The point is, you know, the idea of divorce on demand um, is is another matter. And and all we have to do is put, is is impose some some order on this this chaos. And the problem will be brought under control. But conservatives don't seem to think that there's any um, any need for this. They don't they don't seem to want to take the plunge. And maybe even more significant, or maybe not. I don't know what you think. But what? So the declining role of churches in this conversation. What happened to our churches, and when did they cave? Was it sort of like it's synonymous with what I asked before about conservatives? Mm. 
Very good question. Excellent. I didn't feel a huge amount in this book, but I've written some articles since then about about precisely that question, and it, because it is striking. I mean, at one time, uh, you know, if there was trouble in a family, uh, in a marriage, uh, the, the churches were the natural um, forum, the natural counselors, the natural therapists, if you like, um, because their form of therapy had a had a moral element to it. You find out who's misbehaving, you you know, and you and if you you help them, if necessary, you knock their heads together. You know, you 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 read them the riot act if you have to. The problem is the churches retreated from that that territory. They didn't want to be judgmental. They didn't want to, you know. I guess they thought somehow it was not not their business. Although I don't know why, because they're the ones that consecrate <laughs> the marriages. I would, you know, they're they're interested parties in the matter. They they're stakeholders. They're they have standing to uh, to intervene in a family if anybody does. Um, and yet, my argument in, 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 I've made several places is that. Um, by vacating this territory, leaving a vacuum, it's the legal industry that's moved in. You know, by the churches ah, keeping yeah. their hands off, you know, they they, they st- stood off. They, they don't want to be judgmental. They don't want to interfere. They don't want to, you know, you know, they don't want to do the hard um, job of assigning blame. So what happens? The, 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 instead, the, the legal, the lawyers, and the judges, and the therapists, uh, move, and the social workers move in and and take that turf that the churches have vacated. Um, so it's. It's yeah. It's a very it's shocking. I mean, Albert Moeller at one point he interviewed me, and he called uh, "No Fault Divorce" the what he, I think he called it the uh, you know the scandal of the evangelical conscience. But I never heard him you know leading any calls about reforming the divorce laws or or, or anybody else in, in the yeah. In the you almost have to like go further back in knowing that that it's really this um, this I don't know what would you call it a religion. Of being anti-judgmental, right? That mm. has taken over. Well, what, what's what's perceived as judgmental, and I have a lot of feelings about that because I think there's a huge difference between making a value judgment about what's best for society and being a judgmental person. I think that's very confusing right. for for young people in particular, but really people of all ages. They assume that if you make a standard or a value judgment that you're being judgmental, which is not the same thing at all. And no. this is actually a good way to, t- let's talk for a few minutes um, about the, the third book that you've written. I know it's not published, but you were kind enough to let me take a look. And so I pulled out a few things from there. And I think this is a good segue. Um, I want to talk about the concept of being offended <laughs> because you write about that uh-huh. in this book. So for for those who are listening, the the book is, it's called The Gentleman's Guide to Ruling the World, but it's not available yet, so that really doesn't help you. I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about the kinds of things Stephen talked about in it. And one of them is this this idea of being offended, which kind of goes to the judgmental thing. They're sort of related. And you write, if you are afraid to offend or to anger, you are not yet fully a man. And I'm thinking of that now in relation to what you just said about churches, because what are churches made up of, largely, but men— <laughs> Of course, women, too, who are themselves afraid to offend or to anger, which is what's causing them to be silent. And that, to me, is more of the epidemic that is at the core of everything we're talking about, is it not? Absolutely, it is. There's no question about it. I mean, the churches have been um, – well, I mean, Leon Portals wrote a, a book a few years ago about the feminization of the churches. And, the, you know, the churches are, are becoming hostile places – have become hostile places for men. Um, they don't stand up. They don't stand – the other thing the churches don't stand up to, up to is the state. 
the churches should be standing, not just not just intervening in the family and knocking people's heads together and making them behave. They should be standing up against the state. After all, the church consecrates this marriage. In the Catholic Church, it's a it's a uh, sacrament. But even in the Protestant churches, they 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 preside over this what's supposedly sacred covenant. Mm-hmm. The state the state then comes along and tears up the sacred covenant. And what do the churches do? Do they stand up and express outrage? Do they say you can't do that? Do they do they do they uh, go into court? And defend the wronged party uh, against the you know this this abuse of governmental power. No, they do nothing. They say, well, maybe we'll help you find a lawyer and we'll say a few prayers for you. Um, so, I mean, this is a, this is a classic example of the you know the, the great churchmen of, of our past. You know, John Fisher and Thomas More and and um, Richard Vermbrandt and you know the, the the churchmen who've stood up to the abuse of governmental power, whether it's the communists or the Nazis or the you know uh, Henry VIII or whoever it was. Um, you know, this, these are the defining moments in the history of the church, where, where, where brave churchmen have stood up and said to the state, you are abusing your authority. This is God's turf, not yours. And we just don't have that today. It's just not, it's, it, it's not happening. And that's, you know, that's, that's striking that, that nobody's, nobody's know. doing that. And if they're not, and I mean, and this goes into, I guess, the point of your book, where you say being a man has always meant being a leader, and it will always mean that. Well, if, if men aren't standing up to lead... Well, then where do you turn? Where, where do we go to next, right? Right. And then the most striking pull quote that I, that I wrote down here from that book is, if our age is different, it's not because men are different, but because nowadays they are cowed into withdrawal and submission by both an elite culture and a political regime that are hostile to masculinity itself and threatened to punishment simply for acting like men, which means if they do exercise leadership. So in other words... <laughs> that's and I've addressed this uh, quite a bit on this on this program is um that abdication of male leadership and how um hugely destructive that is for, certainly within marriage but also as you're pointing out within a culture Right, exactly. There is kind of a sense in which I argue, you know, in a way, almost, you know, those who criticize men for weakness is a sense in which they're right. I mean, I don't, I don't agree with the reasons usually for that, but but men do have to stand up. And I mean, there's a sense in which men have to. You can't appeal to lawyers. You can't hide behind lawyers and judges and other people to to, to fight your battles for you. Men have to stand up and and take charge of this. And um, you know, even even if you know when someone even within your you know your family, it's not just the churches that have vacated their turf. It's it's you know the extended family. It's the neighbors. It's you know the, the, everyone who at one time would have in in a family or a community uh, who would have helped sort out a, a difficulty and not hesitated to say that one or both spouses was behaving. Uh, wrongly um nowadays they you know they do nothing they you know we, we all we all do nothing uh and there's it's almost got to the point where we all, we all almost could be open to legal action if we if we do something so it's it's um it's really quite scary it is scary especially when you're considering what's going on politically now because i think we're even further away from it now with the whole trump era and what's happening within that um uh you know uh this year specifically, but really the past few years and how divided we are. Because now, if you if there was any chance for men to <laughs> stand up, or people to stand up, but but even men especially, um, they're even less likely to do so this year, <laughs> right, or last year, than say even five years ago, mm-hmm. because of how divided we are. Yes. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, uh, Stephen, I could talk to you forever. I mean, there's just this is a big subject. It's just a big subject. Um, but I think we're we're going to have to leave it there. And I thank you so much for joining us. Um, tell us what you're working on now and where people can find out more about your work. Well, uh, my website is uh, stephenbaskerville.com. 
and I've written um, articles that follow up the, you know, on these books um, as well, especially dealing with things like the churches, you know, the failure of the churches. I've written a bit lately about the failure of the academic profession. My colleagues in the academic profession have just completely ignored this. It's impossible to to find any critical work from an academic on the politics of this. Uh, it's all written from a kind of therapeutic, uh, almost all the academic writings are on the, um, you know, the, uh, are, are in favor of it, are, are you know, cheerleaders in favor of the divorce industry. Um, the uh, the media, the mass media, the journalistic profession has completely ignored this. And, and, can, and, and, and one of the themes of both books is that you cannot um, – you cannot pigeonhole this. You cannot draw a fire break. That if you corrupt uh, the family and the and the courts and uh, um, the institutions that surround marriage, eventually this is going to spread to other areas of the judiciary um, and to other institutions of our society. It, it can't be contained. It can't be quarantined, if you'll forgive the use of that word, um, within divorce issues. And I'm writing some articles in, in, in now about how these same um, tendencies, these same trends that really originated, really were pioneered in no-fault divorce, are spreading to other areas of the law and to other areas of public policy and to other areas of the government. And they will they will undermine you know, the integrity of, of our whole legal structure and our whole whole political system. Oh. So, um, Well, I wish yeah. we could end on a more positive note, but reality is reality. I want to um, note that your website, for everybody, that's Stephen with a PH, not a V. That's important if you want to find him. So S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Baskerville. Dot com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Stephen. I really appreciate it. You're just a wealth of information. It's been it's been very enlightening. I just know my listeners are going to want to hear this more than once for sure. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed. Or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneVenker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. So for those of you who want to delve into this whole divorce industry more, there was a film, a documentary, I mean, a couple years ago called Divorce Corps that exposed the divorce industry. And there's a great trailer, and I think you can even download the film if you want. I think death would be easier than a divorce. It's very frustrating to have gone for help and then come out with your family destroyed. We have serious problems in our family law court system. Getting divorced is far from easy. Litigation lasted for over a year. I was married only four months, and my divorce has lasted over six and a half years. Close to eight years. Eight years. 
Why is divorce so difficult? People can get as much justice as they can afford. Most people cannot afford any justice at all. What's wrong with that? This is a business. The more you charge, the more people are willing to pay. They didn't give me a lawyer, pay this $11,000 or go to jail. It really got to the end of the line for me. And I said to the litigants, I want you to know, after two hours, we will have spent more than most people in this courthouse make in a year. Your home, your, your valuables are all going to be sold to pay the lawyers and people like me. Even though I was acquitted, he still made a decision to take my son away from me. His birthday was last week, and I didn't get to see him. What you have is a tinderbox, and the lawyers are throwing gasoline on that fire. The system is designed to create conflict. I received a phone call for another 25000 He'd be able to give us what we wanted. Extortion? Family court results in more violence than any other area of law. Deaths, suicide, murder. No jury, just the one biased judge. The judge says, even if you win, you have to pay. The whole thing is just insane. Follow the money. And that's divorcecore.com. So D-I-V-O-R-C-E-C-O-R-P.com. And that'll go really hand in hand with what we're talking about today. Okay, uh, let's see. The email of the day is from Tina. She writes, Dear Suzanne, I have a 20-year-old daughter in a relationship with a guy who will not get a job, and she orders him around like a slave. I don't understand men of today. This guy lets my daughter be totally dominant over him. I've lost all respect for him as a man, and I've tried even having conversations with her, but they go nowhere. Any advice? I've written extensively and talked about how this dynamic is literally an epidemic today. And that is true whether you're in the dating, um, whether you're on the market, dating market, or whether you're already married. It is a major, probably the number one biggest dynamic, sexual dynamic that we're dealing with today. And what's interesting about this mom who was writing about her daughter is that I have to say, it's interesting that the focus is on what's wrong with this guy (laughs) instead of maybe, hmm, why does my daughter feel it necessary to act in the way that she does. So again, you don't want to assume when it comes to this male-female dynamic, you don't want to assume that there's one person to blame in any scenario like this. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they're both kind of coming at this in, in a way that is not going to work. So my suggestion to her would be to talk to her daughter, not the guy, about men and about what they respond to best and how behaving in the manner that she is, is obviously going to cause him to step back and then she's going to ultimately lose respect for him. And this is a relationship that's not going to work long term. And if you need any help with any uh, arguments or stats or data on this dynamic, my site, SuzanneVenker.com, is just saturated with articles that you can point to and use for your own knowledge when you're talking with her. So my suggestion to you would be to talk and focus with your daughter, not on the man. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Venker Show. Don't forget to tune in next week when we are back with Andre Parody of Project Equinox. We have missed Andre, so that's going to be fun. Don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in the Suzanne Venker Show in the Facebook search bar and you'll find it. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or a comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Venker Show.com. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.